is not being televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. On 90.7 FM KPFK. I'm Rick Allen. And I'm Brittany Gallagher. In this episode, Dr. Addison Colleen Stark is back to remind us of another pressing issue affecting humanity, climate change. We talk about some ways we can combat it, and in particular, carbon capture, storage, and sequestration. In the last part of the show, iBeam's creative director, Roderick Schrock, is here to tell us about their new initiative, Rapid Response for a Better Digital Future, which asks artists to generate ideas around rebuilding digital systems. But first, as many people are staying home and schools are closed, more people are looking to the internet as their primary means of connecting with others, accessing educational courses, and locating unemployment and job information. But because of structural barriers, students and low-income workers are losing out on valuable online resources. Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano is joined by Free Press Senior Director of Strategy and Communications, Tim Carr. Students, low-income workers, and incarcerated people are among the hardest hit by the lack of internet accessibility. How is their predicament exacerbated by the COVID outbreak? They are indeed struggling to go online, and it's been exacerbated by a number of factors. One, when you have public schools closing across the country, you're sending tens of millions of kids home. Some of them have access to the and if they're doing a term report for a class, they can do all of their research online. They have laptop computers or they have desktop computers at their homes. But others don't, and there are tens of millions of families that don't have broadband access in the home. And so we've also seen that more than 30 million people have applied for unemployment since the crisis began, the mass layoffs. Those people are at home, and they're trying to figure out where their next job is, or they're trying to, in some cases, work from home. And so there's an increased demand for broadband for low-income families, especially those who are recently out of work. And then, of course, in, in prisons, there's been a historical problem overcharging, particular for cell phone use and telephone use for prisoners. So they're not only under increased threat of contracting COVID-19, given their living situation, but they're also being gouged in many ways in their efforts to communicate with the outside world. In terms of the services before COVID, it's not like COVID had been the cause of their problem. No, there's historical systemic problems with the provision of broadband to these communities. And we've done a number of studies at Free Press about accessibility. One that uh, we did a couple of years ago called Digital Denied actually looked at the digital divide problem as it impacts communities of color. We found that there were systemic issues that left larger proportions of brown and black communities offline. Looking at the issue of broadband and its importance, why isn't it enough for students and workers to just have Internet on their phones? Well, I think a good example that I gave earlier is having to write a paper if you're a student without access to a full keyboard. If you are in a lot of homes, their primary or their only media, their only device through which they access the Internet is a cell phone. And anyone who's tried to type a paragraph on their cell phone knows how difficult that can be. Now, compare that to someone who can afford a laptop or afford a desktop computer who has a high-speed Internet connection is working on a full keyboard. So there is this homework gap. And and we've also seen for people who don't have Internet access at all, there's this sort of parking lot Wi-Fi phenomenon where people are driving to parking lots of public libraries 
in order to get online because they don't have access at home. You have people working out of the, uh, the back of their cars because they don't have access. So devices, handheld devices, are just not something that you can compare to uh, a full laptop and a high-speed connection. How has a lack of broadband access affected low-income workers? Well, a lot of them didn't have Internet access on the job, people who are working in the service sector and are now at home without Internet access. And they, they may be in situations where they don't know that they have a job to go back to. They may have been laid off. They may have been furloughed. They're applying for unemployment. It's helpful to have you know, access to the Internet in order to apply for unemployment, to find out where your local unemployment office is. It's helpful to have Internet access to look for what jobs are available in your community and figure out ways to apply for them. So there's a definite problem there. Can you tell us about some of the, the barriers to accessing broadband? Well, that's a very good question. A lot of the structural barriers are obviously along, along economic lines. Broadband in the United States is costly. It's more costly than it is in most other countries. The services are often not as good. But it's also we found that there are barriers based on race in digital denied that look at the variables that affect whether a person is online or not. And we, we control certain variables and so that we can look at the factor that, that race plays and whether you or not you have access. And there are structural issues or systemic racism issues that have an impact on, on access. A lot of has to do with how ISPs, Internet service providers, make broadband accessible in certain communities, the sort of tools that they use to determine whether they want to build out to a community. Often are use data from industries where there's, there's rampant and systemic racism. You look at the financial services industry that does credit checks and this, um, looks at other financial factors. Um, there's been a long history of systemic racism there that has made it difficult um, for people living in communities of color to gain access to the Internet. So that's a really important factor, as is the issue of affordability. Are Internet service providers doing enough to help? Internet service providers have done some things. Uh, we've asked that they stop their disconnection. We've asked that they, that they provide low-cost services. And some of them have responded. It's been somewhat piecemeal, provider by provider. They don't like government intervention in their businesses. There's been a long history of very powerful companies like Comcast, AT&T, and Verizon that control Internet access in the United States, where they've really held and they have very powerful lobbies in Congress, a very powerful lobby at the FCC, and they've really pushed for the sort of deregulation that has allowed them to determine the levels of competition and the prices. And you had just mentioned that much of the efforts by the ISPs tend to be piecemeal. It seems like there isn't much of a commitment to make or push for major changes in broadband accessibility, even during a pandemic. They're more concerned, as are a lot of companies, about the economic slowdown, with how that affects their bottom line, with how that affects their shareholders. And while they see the necessity to do a better job of providing access to communities that need it most, it's often not a priority. Are we seeing any movement at this point on this issue in the White House? No, not really. The White House is, is obsessed with other things, as it probably should be in many regards. Really, these conversations have been happening at the most in Congress. They've been happening some at the FCC, where we do have some champions at the FCC. Commissioner Rosa Wurzel there has been very good on this. 
And it's happening to some degree at the state level. There are states and municipalities that are looking at issues like municipal broadband. A lot of cities have, because of poor services provided by the commercial sector, have looked to build their own municipal broadband networks that would allow more people to get connected. So uh, those conversations are happening as well. Left the way it is right now, what do you think will happen to the future of workers and students if we don't do anything about expanding Internet options? Well, I think you'll see greater division between the haves and the have-nots. So we are increasingly a, a culture, a society, an economy, even a democracy that's online. And if you deny broadband access to a certain sector of the population, then they will fall behind in many, many ways. It's this idea that we need to think of this in the same way we thought of providing electricity in the 1930s to every household, the same thing that we thought of providing running water to every household. This is now essential infrastructure. It's, it's like a utility where it's not something we should leave to the whims of the private sector in the marketplace. It's, it's something where the government needs a stronger role to ensure that we're all connected to affordable and fast broadband. That was Tim Carr, Free Press Senior Director of Strategy and Communications. He spoke with Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano. KPFK is 100% sponsored by you, the listener, as it has been for the last 60 plus years. And Digital Village, as part of the KPFK family for over a third of that time, has been bringing you the cyber news stories and in-depth interviews you won't hear anywhere else to help you navigate the latest in digital technology. Including the information needed to help you guarantee fair voting, keep the internet neutral, and protect yourself online, especially during these challenging times. Because of the recent unexpected circumstances dictated by the coronavirus, we at KPFK have postponed our traditional fund drive. However, the cost to produce the service you have depended on for so long still remains. So please take the important step of giving a gift to help KPFK continue to bring you today, as always, not only information, news and culture, but also the sense of solace, joy, relief and community you've come to expect from us. You can donate right now to keep this glorious, independent, listener sponsored radio flourishing by going to kpfk.org forward slash pledge, where you will find a list of ways to do so. You can then make your pledge right from the page or by calling 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Thanks again. Up next, Dr. Addison Clean Stark is back to talk about carbon capture and sequestration. But first, what is it? When most people talk about CCS or carbon capture, I might use those interchangeably throughout this, is people are envisioning taking what otherwise would be emitted CO2 from a power plant, say a natural gas or a coal power plant, and scrubbing the CO2 out and then taking that, which it ends up being a pure CO2 stream. Once you have that pure CO2 stream, you have not emitted it from your power plant and you can pipe that to a geological sequestration site. And then generally what that is, is people will drill a hole down and inject that CO2 
at very high pressures deep underground, usually in a geological formation that's capable of storing it permanently. So does it start to matter where we put these plants? So there are geological formations that are better than others at holding CO2. One way that we can imagine accessing those is one of the big challenges today is all of our power plants today aren't necessarily co-located in all the right places. However, if we imagine a broad deployment of CCS, we would likely see a build out of carbon dioxide pipelines that might run on the same thoroughfares that natural gas pipelines already run on to be able to collect the CO2 from the pipelines and then bring them to locations where we can do storage. There are other formations that other people are considering on using today, which might be better located, is also the potential to use exhausted oil wells and gas wells, which already are underground, empty, porous structures that have already been emptied that could be storing CO2 as well. So those are often located near energy infrastructure and could be a good place to start the deployment. And then we could imagine having an infrastructure build out of CO2 pipelines to be able to bring more diffuse CO2 sources back to places where we can do geological sequestration. How do we know that geological storage is secure? That is an important question. What we really need to be able to do is to remove accumulated carbon, whether it be in the form of carbon dioxide, which is the potent greenhouse gas, and put it out of the biosphere. So essentially the things that we've removed from underground, the fossil fuels to burn, has been released into the biosphere. We want to remove it out of that down into the geosphere. And so what that means is we want to find places that we can put CO2 deep underground that will last for a very long time. And when I say a very long time, I mean geological timescales. We're talking hundreds of thousands to millions of years that it would be trapped underground. There has been a lot of academic and experimental work done to prove that we can do this with CO2 as a supercritical fluid, essentially very high pressure CO2 injected underground and it'll last a long time. But fundamentally, there's innovation being done that not only will take CO2 and store it as a pressurized gas or a supercritical liquid, but also chemical reactions that can occur underground to convert CO2 to CO3 carbonate, which actually becomes the most thermodynamically stable form of carbon and also becomes a mineral. So there's the potential where not only can we store CO2, but if we do it right, we can store CO2 as a mineral and sequester it permanently back as a solid mineral, for example, as calcium carbonate, which would last indefinitely for millions of years. Wow, that's pretty amazing. What are the economics and politics around CCS? When you look at the political situation, there's a little bit of reluctance on the left about the full-scale deployment of carbon capture and storage technology because of the concern that it puts a longer lease on life for the utilization of fossil fuels, particularly with views from the left and the environmental left around the Green New Deal is that we should just stop the utilization of fossil fuels immediately. However, there's a very clear case to be made that we do need to develop and deploy carbon capture 
because of the emissions from industry that are harder to tackle. For example, in the production of steel, when you reduce iron ore to iron, you inherently are releasing CO2 as part of the chemical process and in a very huge amount. This is a place where I do think that we're going to find traction with the left to recognize that there is a need to address that through carbon capture. And so this is a place where I do think we might be able to start to make some inroads in the deployment of this technology. However, it's very hard to envision being able to get to net zero emissions by mid-century without carbon capture being part of it. And I think that more of the environmental organizations are starting to recognize that. But there still is better understanding and communication that needs to be done for the environmental community. And it's right that they're asking these key questions. We have a president who doesn't believe in climate change. But are there any efforts at the congressional level to help the deployment of CCS technology? There is a bipartisan effort to improve the support of deployment of carbon capture technology through both the tax code, and this is through a specific provision called 45Q, which is actually making available a a direct subsidy for the development and deployment of CCS technology. And this is on the books. And right now we've recently gotten IRS guidance about how developers can access this tax credit. And it looks very similar to what's been used for solar and wind to deploy it. And this is a very positive sign. And further, there is on the Hill, both in the House and in the Senate, bipartisan groups pushing for a bill called the Use It Act, which also would support demonstration projects and further support for direct air capture technology. And this is something that we're seeing bipartisan coalescence around very diverse members in both Republican and Democratic caucuses. Personally, I'm excited to see that effort, and hopefully it'll be a harbinger of a good day. For us to hit net zero emissions by mid-century, we need a technology that's able to address not only point source emissions like fossil power plants, but also diffuse sources like long distance flight and other hard to decarbonize pieces like industrial emissions from cement and from steel. Carbon capture and storage is a technology that will allow us to directly remove those emissions and put them deep under ground so we don't continue to accumulate them in the atmosphere where they directly result in climate change. That was Dr. Addison Clean-Stark of the Bipartisan Policy Center telling us about carbon capture, storage, and sequestration. Artist Paul Clay is quoted as saying, art does not reproduce the visible, rather, it makes visible. In the last part of the show, I'm joined by Roderick Schrock, the executive director of iBeam. I'll let him tell us what iBeam is. iBeam is a platform for artists to engage technology and society. We do that primarily through direct support of artists that are investigating, creating, or making art with technology in mind. That takes many different forms. We've been around for 20 years, so we've seen technology and culture change a lot over those years. The work that we've supported really does range from people that have made technologies or softwares that have gone on to have fairly significant impacts in the world, such as Zach Lieberman's development of Open Frameworks, which is one of the leading creative performance softwares globally, 
and it's an open source product that came about through his research and his interest while he was at Ivane some years ago to artists that make a purely work in the aesthetic realm that might live better in a gallery or in a museum, such as Torquase Dyson, who worked with us in 2016, and whose practice, while not specifically engaging material technologies, very much engages with metaphors around technology, and particularly ideas within technology and how it relates to African-American communities in the United States. It's a very wide-ranging approach to what technology is and what it can be, but what we truly believe in at the end of the day is that when you bring creative minds and people that are thinking in visionary ways about artistic intentionality and its relationship in particular to technology, that the results that come from a protected space that supports that investigation and research can oftentimes be impactful and visionary in ways that are different than either traditional arts organizations or art residencies, or on the other side of the coin, uh, more standard tech incubator models as well. So we're somewhere between those two worlds, but we are artist focused first and foremost, and then everything follows from that. Yeah, I like that, the artist focused first. IBEAM has a new initiative called Rapid Response for a Better Digital Future. How did this come to fruition? This initiative really was born at the beginning of the pandemic in New York City. We typically run a residency program that brings together artists and technologists and engineers and researchers in physical space and gives them access to studio work areas, tools, all those things in the physical world that are beneficial to artists that are working in these ways. We were getting ready to start preparing our open call for residents when everything was shifting in that first few weeks. I threw my hands up in the air and admitted to the fact that I don't know what a residency means right now. So we thought, what if we create a space and a support structure that really foregrounds a reset of imagination about what we want our relationships to technology to be from an artist-led perspective, and how could we fund the most interesting and visionary practitioners in our community as quickly as possible to support the development of concepts and ideas? Is there a component of this program that could then help the most actionable ideas from that cohort develop further into projects that could be realized in the world. What we didn't foresee in the beginning, but what became an overarching question of how do we exit surveillance capitalism and what can replace it? That wasn't my first thought going into this. That really came through conversation with one of the advisors, the artist Hito Styral, who looked at the list of questions that I had put together that I thought we could focus on and said, all of these points really only make sense in the context of this larger question of surveillance capitalism and what can replace it. And almost by asking that question, it supposes something that I think a lot of people don't even really realize they could question, which I think is, is our relationship with technology as it exists now, and particularly in this time of self-quarantine and in many ways, a systemic collapse of many things that we took for granted. Are we accessing our tools and our culture in the way that is most beneficial and most humane for the good of the future, and not just the future 
10 weeks from now or 10 months from now, but the future 10 years from now. And how could we then begin the process of reevaluating what we actually want from our future relationship with these tools? And I think the irony of us having this conversation on Zoom and some of the issues around privacy and lack of the ability to protect information even in all of our conversations right now, that feels really pertinent and really necessary for us to hopefully bring together communities of practitioners that can generate some new ways of thinking about what the scope of the horizon could be for what we want in in our relationship to technology. And we think artists are the people who can actually ask the best questions about that. And in my experience, that's often the case. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people actually realize the level of, quote unquote, surveillance capitalism we're actually under. I think what we're really trying to do is create a space for people to dig into some of the nuances around these questions. And one of the things that has really struck me in the responses that we've heard from artists that are interested in this call is their focus on education as being a key component of this. Like, how do you help people realize that there could be other options? We see this as the starting point of a huge process. And we're going to be announcing soon the support of two major foundations to help propel this effort. And the thought is that if we are able to rally enough resources of people who are committed to this type of thought process, then there's a real potential that this could develop into much more than we could even imagine. And I think remembering that this is an arts first Mm -hmm. step for an arts organization, and that the role of the artists is not necessarily to produce solutions, but is instead to transform humans. Art has a great way of evoking emotion. And I have to say, when I found out about this, it really gave me hope. What is something you hope to see to come out of rapid response for a better digital future? I hope to see a really wide range of approaches and ideas that run from just the most aesthetically elegant, beautiful approaches to what art can be in a time of crisis and a time of rethinking everything to projects that take a artist-led approach to clearing paths for a different way of imagining what the relationship between technology and society could be. And I don't want to be any more specific than that because I'm always wrong when I predict what our artists are going to do. But I expect a whole range of projects in between those poles to be part of this group and to inform one another, encourage one another, and to create a really independent-minded virtual R&D lab for artists to imagine the future for things that can really shore up and help sustain civic life and the public domain. I think on behalf of everyone on our team working on this has been one of the real bright spots of the last two months in particular is coming back to this and remembering that we can be optimistic at this point. And there's always a way out. Let's remember that and let's see where artists could help us get to. That was Roderick Schrock, the executive director of iBeam, telling us about their latest initiative, having artists tackle some of the most pressing technological issues of our time. How do we begin to exit surveillance capitalism as the dominating form of digital life? 
and what can replace it? That's it for Digital Village. I'm Brittany Gallagher at Innate Quantum World. You can hear this episode again by subscribing to our podcast or going to kpfk.org, clicking audio archives and search for Digital Village. You can follow us on all things social using at Digital V Radio or at digitalvillage.org. KPFK is 100% listener sponsored and we need your support. You can donate now and keep glorious independent listener sponsored radio going at KPFK. Just go to kpfk.org forward slash pledge. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen and we'll we'll see see you online. online.